For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with the new director of the Tucson Audubon Society. Meet 15-year-old Mike and his big brother, Elliot, a friendship that started with help from a nonprofit organization. Find out how three local artists and mothers found ways to collaborate with their children. Plus an exclusive song from singer Nancy McCallion. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Birding and nature tourism are big business in Arizona. To thrive, these activities depend on access to healthy ecosystems. Next, Tony Paniagua interviews Karen Fogus, the executive director of the Tucson Audubon Society, an environmentally focused group that Fogus says advocates for more than just the birds. You were born in Idaho, but your last job was in South Dakota. You're familiar with the Northwest. Uh, what brought you to Tucson? Well, I had always imagined, living in South Dakota for several years, that I would make my way back to the Pacific Northwest, and my kids kind of headed for different parts of the country, which freed me up to think about things differently. And Tucson has always been high on my list of favorite places, and uh, to become part of an environmental organization was even better, so the, the two were a perfect fit. So you used to work at the Boys and Girls Clubs in South Dakota? I did. I worked in the largest organization in the state and uh, did that for nine years. It was great experience. I loved working with the kids. Uh, but uh, I had, in years previous to that, I had worked with Sierra Club, and it was my all-time favorite job. And so it was, it was really a great opportunity to come back to environmental work. So you've only been in Tucson since March of this year, a couple of months. Right. What would you like to say about Tucson Audubon for those people who may not be very familiar with this organization? Oh, you have a gem in your community that that many people are not aware of. And I think that uh, part of my job is to maybe get out there and get people excited about Tucson Audubon and all it offers to this community. Some people think this is just about birds. Uh, you disagree with that. I do. It is, you know, we, we have this image of our mind of, you know, geeky people with binoculars. And yeah, there's some of that, but they're not so geeky. There's people like you and me, Tony, that are out there enjoying birds. But Tucson Audubon and the Audubon Society is not just about birding by any stretch. Uh, there's so much more that we have to offer in terms of, you know, conservation, improving people's lives by attending to the habitats for birds, and just the enjoyment and recreation associated with that part of nature. So one of the challenges, or let's just say uh, one of the main uh, works for which you are responsible is to try to get more people engaged, to try to attract more membership. And that's the case in many nonprofit organizations. How do you go about that? I think, Tony, that that's about people understanding what you are and what you have to offer them. Because we don't want to persuade somebody. We want to get them interested and get them excited and, and help them to know and experience something perhaps different than, than they currently are. And so a lot of times it's just getting that that message out, getting that uh, familiarity with the organization out. And uh, then then people connect and they realize that there really is something in it for them. So, so how do you try to engage younger people and people from diverse ethnic backgrounds? You go to them. 
I think it's really important that you relate to them where they're at. And most of us who have enjoyed the outdoors and the environment over our lives, somebody triggered that for us, usually when we were younger and got that spark going. And so if we can get out to kids and help them to experience nature in a way that they may not uh, where I came from working with Boys and Girls Club's kids, it was not at all unusual for kids never to get out of the city. And so getting them out and getting them ex- the experience can light that fire for them and make them into a lifelong learner and, and a person who can really enjoy nature. You have many programs, obviously, here at Tucson Audubon. One of them is the Patent House, which you recently obtained. A Patent House, for those who may not know, is a house that exists in Patagonia, Arizona. And what did you tell us a bit about that background and what you hope to accomplish over there? I had the opportunity last week to sit down with Bonnie Moon Patton, um, who was the daughter of the, the Pattons, who invited people into their backyard in Patagonia because they adjoin a nature area and had this amazing array of birds that visited and uh, the family wanted to keep that experiencing going for the thousands of birders throughout the nation who have come enjoyed that backyard setting and so Tucson Audubon has been honored to be able to take that project and be able to continue the legacy that the patents intended. And it's just an exquisite place to go and visit. And you can see some rare birds at the same time. It's pretty fun. All right. And you have a lot of upcoming events. One of them is interesting. It's called the Tucson Bird and Wildlife Festival. Now, this is only May, but it's coming up in August. Why August? The middle of August, a celebration here in Southern Arizona. It seems like a crazy time, but actually it's one of the best times to get out and view birds because of nesting and and migratory um, activity. August is a wonderful month to to see birds. And then it's obviously a time in, in Tucson where maybe some of the tourism is is lower and it's a great opportunity to show the community the interest in what the economic impact that birders can have to a community like Tucson. And this has uh, been in place for five years. It's tremendously strong event. There are hundreds of people that come and come from all over the country to attend. So it really showcases Tucson and what Tucson has to offer in a very special and unique way. All right. And then moving forward, where would you like to see Tucson Audubon in five or 10 years? We have a good, strong membership at this point in time. I would love to see that at least doubled, if not tripled. I I really would love to see people understand what Tucson Audubon is about and connect with the organization and become a part of that. Right now it has about 4,000 members. Our our reach is about 4,000 in Tucson and within a community of this size, I just think that we could could do better. So that's going to be on the plan for the next few years is how do we reach those people? How do we build those relationships? How do we connect them with something as important as birds and nature? And if someone's never gone out there to hike Arizona, observe birds in this state, what would you say to him or her? Oh my gosh, we make it so easy. Uh, Go to our website, tucsonaudubon.org, and you can browse, you can see a variety of events and activities. There's something for everyone there, from the most experienced person to the newbie, uh, and even to the new people like me, to Tucson, Arizona. All right, Karen Fogus, welcome to Tucson, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Tony.
The nonprofit group Big Brothers originated in New York City in 1904. The Tucson chapter was founded in 1963 by Dr. Hugh C. Thompson, Jr., and later combined with Big Sisters. The group's mission is to put boys and girls in need of positive role models, together with adult volunteers, to foster mentoring and friendships. According to volunteer coordinator Kat Henricks, one of the greatest challenges is finding enough big brothers. When college student Elliot Brashears signed up five years ago, he was matched with a boy named Mike. Mike is now 15, and he and Elliot spent some time talking with me about the things that make their friendship work. I'm Mike. I'm 15. What made you think that having a big brother would be fun? What was the, uh, the thing that led you into to getting into this? Uh, I'm the only guy in my family, so I didn't really have any other guys to talk to other than my little kid friends, and they didn't really get the older person problems that I was talking about. So uh, my mom thought it would be a good idea to go to the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, and after a couple months, well, I met Elliot. Well, do you remember what they wanted to know about you? Did they ask you questions about what you like to do? They asked me a lot of questions. Um, it was mainly just like a booklet um, with just a lot of questions like, what do you like to do during your free time? How do, would you rather spend your time with a group of people or alone with a couple of friends? Or, you know, would you rather sit home on your computer or go out for like a day of soccer or football? So I think they did good in the matching. So how did life change for you after you started hanging out with Elliot? Um, I definitely had someone to talk to. I also definitely had something to do in my free time, someone to talk to during my free time. Like on the weekends, if I was just sitting bored, me and Elliot would probably get together like every other weekend or so, something like that. And we'd just sit around, maybe talk. You maybe wouldn't even do anything. We'd just sit around and talk for a while, we'd go to movies, walk around places. Okay, well, let's talk to Elliot. What helped you make the decision to volunteer your time in this way? I had a friend that I grew up with and went to high school with, and we stayed in touch through college, and I believe it was my sophomore year when I had some more free time in my schedule, and uh, I was talking to her, and, and she'd been in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, I think was currently in it at the time, and was just raving about it. What a fantastic experience she'd had and felt like she'd really, you know, it was it was volunteer experience that actually had a meaningful impact on her life and she felt like it was something that, you know, she always walked away from it with, uh, uh, with the feeling like she'd contributed something. And that, you know, that, that was kind of all I had going into it. I just kind of threw myself into it and uh, a couple weeks later, Mike and I were matched, and we just took it from there. Did you know what to expect before you met Mike? I mean, I did not. I did not. Uh, Mike and I joke about the the first time that we met each other at the Big Brothers Big Sisters office. We were sitting in the lobby right next to each other, didn't even know we were about to be matched, and you know, this friendship was about to form. But you know, again, like Mike, it. it there's always a little bit of awkwardness when you throw two strangers together in somewhat of an intimate setting, but we did find that, you know, very quickly, despite our difference in age, we became quite comfortable around each other and it's very easy to become friends. 
What's something you think you learned from Mike? <laughs> He's taught me a number of just physical skills since we do so many uh, many things outdoors. He's taught me how to shoot a bow. He's you know taught me various frisbee flicks and taught me how to dive into a pool, which is something embarrassing I did not know how to do prior to meeting Mike. But one thing that really impresses me about Mike, though, is his willingness to jump into conversations and to talk openly with people, even people that are significantly older than him. I know for me personally, yeah, that, that was something difficult at my age, and it always impresses me how, uh, how easily he will just hop into a conversation and, and talk with people and, and, and be open with others. And, well, you know, one of the first things you said, though, was that you don't like new, that you were <laughs> nervous when you first met him. Is that the way you were five years ago? You think you're different now? I, I do think I am different now. Um, I think I've definitely gotten... Actually, I think a lot of things is I don't like people my age. They always talk about stupid stuff. <laughs> um, but well, people, yeah, get used to that. That's yeah. never going to change. Never changes. I don't want to get used to it. So what's something that you think you've learned from Elliot in the time that you've known him? I actually think I've learned a couple of things. I think I've tried to keep open minds about new things. Like, um, he's a vegetarian, and anytime my mom cooks the vegetarian food when he comes over, I always try to take a little bite of it just to try it. But I think also I've learned to keep a positive attitude on things. Like, Elliot can see a torn-down building and see the best in the torn-down building, so I think that's kind of rubbed off on me. A lot of it is I have never seen him in a bad mood, so... <laughs> It's kind of hard to look on the downside around him at anything. So if you like look at like just anything, it's kind of hard to look at the downside. So I think that's kind of rubbed off on me. What about you, Elliot? Do you think about uh, what the future might hold for this uh, friendship? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm starting up at the medical school in the fall. So I get to stay here in Tucson for the next four years, which is, you know, that's exciting that that Mike and I at least have that much time when we'll be in the same city. And, you know, even though I know I'm going to be really busy during that time, you know, we managed to keep our relationship going even when I was out of the country for 15 months. So, you know, I feel pretty good that uh, we're going to be able to continue to, to have a strong relationship. And certainly it always takes work on both ends to keep it going. But, you know, for the next four years and then some. I don't see any reason why I can't keep going strong. So I think that's exciting. And I, I also have to say uh, Mike's mom has been a great facilitator in helping us do things. She's very, very supportive in uh, having me over for dinner, giving Mike a ride someplace, just whatever it takes to get us together. And, and that that adds a lot to the relationship and you know I'm sure that's not something every kid has so she always says she's our personal cheerleader it was easy for us to get close and I'm sure that's not the case with every big and little but you know that's another thing like I, I can at least tell that the program does offer is they have coordinators for each match that even still check in with us and if there ever was to be a conflict with us or just something wasn't working out between our schedules, there are the resources at the program to, to help you get back on track. So I guess I would tell anyone that was interested in Big Brothers, Big Sisters, you know, if, 
if it's not a perfect match right away or you don't feel like you click instantly, don't back off from it. That, you know, it, it takes time. And, you know, I think also sometimes people will need to go through a couple matches before they find someone that they, they really click with. But if I had to give anything to any littles, I'd just say do a lot of research so when you talk to your parents, you sound nice and smart, like you know everything about the program. <laughs> he is mature for his age. That was 15-year-old Mike and his big brother, Elliot, talking about their friendship between Frisbee throws on the mall at the University of Arizona. Coming up, meet three local artists and moms who invited their children to join them in being creative. More Arizona Spotlight is right after this break. Welcome back to Arizona Spotlight. A good parent has to learn about sacrifice, as does anyone who follows their artistic passion as a way of making a living. Andrew Brown collected the stories of three local women who are both mothers and artists. He found that instead of sacrificing their creative identities, each found ways to collaborate with her children and celebrate the special bond they share. I'm Catherine Ide, and I'm an artist and a mom. My mom um, was an artist, uh, kind of like a Sunday painter that also had five kids. So she would bring out her art supplies, and I would be really excited when they came out. A lot of people try to keep their work separate from what you know, their child, this is mine, I'm doing this, and there comes a point where it's kind of like, I felt like you're fighting it. You're making work, your daughter sees what you're doing, she wants to be included in on it. So I guess naturally, like, an, like a mother and an artist, I would just draw with her and create things with her. We will collaborate on one piece of paper and share the paper and move the drawing paper around. Those are what really sparked my interest. I thought that there was something really special to them. I contacted a certain residency and asked them if they would accept 
teams of a parent and child. They said, we've never done this before, but we're interested. So we started that project in, um, in Buenos Aires in uh, June of last year. My intention was to make really great pieces of art, not just to hang out and play with my daughter with some art stuff. As a fine artist, I wanted to, the work to be good. I wanted it to be exhibition you know, quality. I never would create the work that I create um, if it wasn't for her marks and her beginnings on the paper. It's a lot different if I approach the paper myself and go into my own head and, and make the work. There's something magical about children's artwork and that free expression that comes from this natural place that you can't, you can't bottle it. Everyone would buy it if you could. My name is Natalie Brewster Wynn and I am a performance artist and a yoga teacher, acrobatic yoga teacher, acro yoga teacher. I teach slackline yoga and I do all sorts of different I have a certain amount of artistic energy Mostly and it needs to be being directed somewhere, stuff, but um, that somewhere. where that somewhere is can be different, acting, but it has to be somewhere. Experimental acting, some durational and experimental performance art. I was like dead set against having kids and really never thought I would. And then I hit age 23 or so and was like completely just did a 180. Having a kid is really hard. It's physically difficult on your body. There's a lot of pain involved for everybody. And so doing yoga or doing movement, I never wanted to have that practice be totally separated from my kids. And so I was always trying to find ways to do yoga with my daughter and to do acrobatics with my daughter and have these creative processes. So now we have this really nice vocabulary of movement together. Nice. Good. So the balloon project is called Love Letters Leave No Trace, and it was inspired by the imagery of children's birthday parties. The process of the project is each color palette deals with a particular theme related to childhood development. Um, and then each theme, I choose a text, that text is then exploded onto balloons. And then I give my daughter or both of my daughters, give them the balloons and set them loose in a landscape and let them install the balloons. And then it sort of becomes the process of what happens then, like what text becomes important, which balloons are the ones that pop and fly away. Um, Natalie, a balloon flew away. <gasps> the end result is, photog is photographs, right? But it's not really a photography project. It's a collaborative project and it's like a ritual installation project and it is a performance in its own way. Children can be a very powerful image if you just mess with the record a little bit. And so it's been, it's been a really cool thing. We create art in the end, but what we do along the way is figure it out with what we have available. And I think that that's a really useful process to learn both in art and in life. My name is Shannon Smith. Um, I'm a photographer, a teacher, mom. <laughs> I always swore I'd never get married. I'd never have kids. I was never going to do that. That was just not my thing, you know, and it, then I, all of that was there all of a sudden. I can't imagine not being, not taking a photograph. I really can't. I feel like it would be like I severed a limb or something. Like I just would feel off. 
when I was pregnant with Lucy, I guess I had all these ideas like, oh, you know, I'll be an art, an art mom, you know, and it'll be great. She'll be a little artist and we'll do things together. And you don't realize, like, God, she needs me every second. Okay, I'm just gonna take a test shot, Lucy. I'd get on a shoot, you know, and I'd start doing it. And then, you know, they were in their little pumpkin seat. But again, you know, just the constant, hey, I'm here, pay attention to me. and. So that's when I was like, you know what? Okay, well, you're just gonna be in it. And it just went from there. I just started recreating things I would see that happened in our lives. But at the time, you know, I couldn't stop, you know, and oh, well, I'm gonna take this picture because, you know, I'll wait on you. You don't need me right now. You know, I'd take care of the kids and then, okay, well, we're gonna recreate this, what you did, but I'm gonna have way better lighting and move things around and have it look the way I want it to look. At the end of the day, it usually isn't what I set out for, but they always do, like, I always get something out of it. And honestly, what they do, it, it was better than what I even thought, so. Got some pretty good little models. I must pay them well in Dairy Queen is usually their payment. Sometimes I can't imagine them when they do grow up and what am I gonna create, but I'm sure I don't need to think about that right now. I'll think about it when it happens and it'll be fine. But when I first had kids, it was hard and now I can't imagine them not being in my work. I really can't. That was an adaptation of a television story produced by Andrew Brown for Arizona Illustrated. You can see the art moms and their kids at azpm.org. One of the guests on our Stairwell session series was singer and songwriter Nancy McCallion, who played music accompanied by her husband Danny Krieger on guitar and backing vocals. Here's a previously unaired song from that session called He's Gone, recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood under the stairs at AZPM.
That was Nancy McCallion with Danny Krieger. More exclusive music and a video are on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Listen for a return of the Stairwell Sessions beginning this summer. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can now find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.